I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB Podcast. I'm Malin Hay. My guest this week is Amir Srinivasan, the philosopher and political theorist at Oxford, whose 13 pieces for the LRB have covered a dazzling array of topics, from sexual politics to effective altruism to what goes on in the mind of an octopus and beyond. Amir, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk today about the piece she wrote in the most recent issue of the paper, which begins as a discussion of the government's recent Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, the provisions of which include appointing a free speech czar to secure freedom of speech in British universities. The piece becomes a much more wide-ranging essay about the meaning of free speech and the function of universities as places in which speech and conversation take place, as we'll discuss. But to begin with, Amir, um, let's start by talking about this education bill. There hasn't been that much coverage of it in the media yet you quite rightly seem worried about it. Um, so maybe can you start by going into a little bit of detail about what the bill is and why it might be a bad thing for universities? It has been really striking how little coverage there has been in the mainstream press, even the alternative press um, of the bill. I mean, what press there has been has been in right-wing newspapers um, crowing over the appointment of Arif Ahmed as free speech czar. And that's been taken as the fulfillment, or at least the partial fulfillment, of Rishi Sunak's promise to wage a war on wokeism, whatever that's supposed to be. Uh, But very little attention has been paid to the new legislation itself. Um, It's a very powerful, sweeping bit of legislation. that is of huge ambition and very worryingly light on detail. So, I mean, the basic outline is that it imposes on not just universities, but also student unions, a new duty to actively promote free speech. And then it's explained that this duty involves not denying access to university premises to any speaker on the grounds of their views or the views they might express or the political projects of which they are a part. And it also prohibits universities from making decisions uh, about hiring and promotion as as it applies to their university employees or academic employees on the grounds of what academics, uh, on on the grounds of academics exercise of free speech or academic freedom, which they say includes the right to explore controversial ideas and put forward, you know, controversial arguments. And so on the face of it, that might not seem particularly alarming, but when you think about how universities actually work and also what academic freedom really means, you can see just how alarming and threatening these provisions are. And I should add that the provisions come along with very meaningful enforcement mechanisms. So 
uh, the new free speech czar, Arif Ahmed, will be in the office for students. And he will have the authority to investigate universities and student unions that seem to be derelict in their duty to promote free speech and academic freedom, which includes the ability to fine universities and student unions at a time when, of course, universities and student unions are, you know, very perilously funded. Um, And also any person who feels that a university or um, has violated free speech and in a way that results in that person suffering adverse consequences has the right to bring a civil suit, right? So you can sue the university for not letting you speak there. So what does this all mean in practice? Well, we don't really know yet. I mean, it's a deliberately vague piece of legislation. But here, you know, so for example, if a student group wanted to invite a Holocaust denier or a fascist and the universities tried to stop them or maybe even if the student union called on that student group to rescind the invitation, I mean, that would be a violation of this new law. And that would mean that the university or student union was subject to fines and maybe even civil suits. And similarly, it means that when a university is thinking about, for example, whether to promote an academic, it can't use normal academic measures of disciplinary competence. So for example, if you had a historian who suddenly got weirdly radicalized, stopped doing serious history and started writing Holocaust denying history, pseudo history in the face of all historical evidence, that wouldn't be grounds for not promoting that historian. So the legislation really strikes at the heart of what the university does and at the heart of academic freedom. Ironically, of course, under the aegis of protecting the university and protecting academic freedom. So you've talked about two things there. One is the enforcement mechanism of this law, which you rightly point out is is full of holes and, and maybe applied inconsistently. But I wonder if we can also go a little bit more into the other thing you talk about, which is the principles behind the law and perhaps also what the law's authors get wrong about free speech. Your piece argues that the Act is based on what you call a conflation now commonplace of free speech and academic freedom. Also, you point out that the new Free Speech Tsar's official job title is Director for Freedom of Speech and Academic Freedom. So how do you think the Act and also maybe the wider debates about free speech on campus confuse these two things? How are they actually different? Yeah, so really good question. I think the there's a real confusion between the two and not just an ideologically convenient conflation, although there is also that. I think it's quite intuitive to think that free academic freedom is just free speech within the university. But free speech is the principle that citizens or denizens of a state should be given maximal license to express and speak their viewpoints without intervention from the state, right? And of course, there are going to be limits to this license, right? It's not going to include all speech. So there might be some exceptions made for libel and slander, um, incitement to violence, perhaps hate speech. There's that exception in the UK. There isn't a hate speech exception in the US, which tends towards a more kind of absolutist perspective on free speech. But the crucial point here is that free speech protects a huge amount of false and offensive uh, and just terrible and crummy speech, 
right? The presumption is that people should be allowed to express themselves unless there's a very, very, very strong overriding reason um, why the state should step in and control or restrict that speech. And I mean, maybe one way of putting this is the academy just isn't Hyde Park Corner, right? Hyde Park Corner is a sort of perfect embodiment of the liberal principle of free speech, right? You can say anything at Hyde Park Corner that isn't illegal, right? It's supposed to be a kind of perfect sphere of free expression, but that's that's not the academy. And anyone who's thought about universities or gone to universities will realize why. The university is an institution that is supposed to serve the public good through the creation of knowledge and understanding. And it does this through the exercise of academic disciplinary expertise. And disciplinary expertise isn't content neutral. So the whole idea about free speech is that any restrictions on it aren't supposed to do with the content of what you're saying. They have to do with the form. So it's libel or it's slander or it's incitement to violence. We're not talking there about what you're saying. We're rather talking about what the speech is doing. But in the academy, we are just constantly in the business correctly of making discriminations on the grounds of what of what people actually say and think, right? So this is what we do when we hire people, promote people, when we grade exams, when we confer degrees, when we do peer review. Uh, That's just what it is to have a university. And if we didn't have that, right, if the university weren't a place of content-based, viewpoint-based discrimination, there would be no case for the public subsidy of the university because the university would then just be something else. It wouldn't be a place about the production of knowledge and understanding through the exercise and development of disciplinary expertise. It would just be a place for no holds barred expression, right? It would be more like Twitter or what Twitter used to be. One thing that I think is interesting here is the way in which actually almost everyone gets this wrong, including those people, usually students, who launch no-platforming campaigns. So even those who are mounting no-platforming campaigns, for example, against someone like Kathleen Stock or someone historically like Jermaine Greer, they do so within typically a, a kind of standard liberal free speech paradigm. Why is this the case? Well, it's canonically thought that free speech meets its limit at certain forms of very serious harm, right? And we we inherit that idea from John Stuart Mill, um, a great 19th century theorist of free speech, among other things. And what's known as Mill's harm principle distinguishes legitimate exercises of free speech from illegitimate ones. So he says that the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a community against his will is to prevent harm to others. Um, So then the question is, well, which harms, right? And for Mill, actually, he, he had this view on which most speech just didn't actually cause harm, right? So he's really only thinking of a case of like something like incitement to violence. So his his paradigm example is uh, if you say in front of an angry mob gathered outside a corn dealer's house that corn dealers are starving the poor, uh, that is harmful verbal conduct, right? Because what you're trying to do is, what you're in fact doing is inciting that angry mob to violently attack the corn dealer. But the problem with Mill's harm principle and why it's 
something that's implicitly a- appealed to by an increasing number of students who launch no platforming campaigns is that Mill's just wrong about harm. I mean, almost any bit of speech can be harmful, right? Maybe not radically harmful, but at least minimally harmful. Anytime I say something that offends someone, you know, it causes some discomfort or unpleasantness in them. And and that's a form of harm. So once we recognize that, there's this difficult question of where we want to draw the line. And the debate about no platforming and about, you know, cancel culture and censoriousness and, you know, woke students often revolves around precisely the question of which forms of harm are acceptable and unacceptable with, you know, the students behind no platforming, someone like Kathleen Stock saying that the harm that her speech does, which is not just a matter of giving offense, it's also a matter of enabling a certain anti-trans political program is so grievous such as to constrain her right to free speech. But I actually think that this this whole way of framing the debate is mistaken because we're taking up the perspective of you know, the free speech paradigm. And the real question is about academic freedom and about universities. So just, just to continue thinking a little bit more about academic freedom, um, I was intrigued reading the piece by a quotation you include from a paper that you co-wrote, where you argue that effective teaching and research requires that communicative privileges be given to some and not others based on people's disciplinary competence. So you've talked about that a little bit already, right? Like this idea that in the academy, we afford people the right to speak based on the content of their speech and that academics are people who have the right to say who's right and who's wrong, essentially. In the piece, you also talk about various attacks on the idea of disciplinary competence in the name of academic freedom. I want to know what you think about whether attacks on disciplinary competence are solely the province of the right wing? Or do you think there's been an erosion of that concept across the political spectrum in the last few years? I'm just thinking about um, another bit in the piece where you mention some of your students' attachment to a politics of first personal belief. And if it does exist across the board, how does that differ between the right wing and the left wing? How do they express it differently? Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right to suggest that this is in no way you know, just a right wing perspective. I mean, yeah, what a good question. Um, so I think there are certain deep commonalities between, you know, what we might call right wing free speech warriors and students who are ostensibly on the left and seemingly attacking the exercise of of speech rights. Um, so both evince often a lack of trust in academics and indeed the purpose of the university and the guarantees of academic freedom. So like there's this commonality between the new legislation, the new academic freedom bill, and the calls that we see from students to fire academics who have offensive views. So, you know, the most obvious and memorable case, and I think very worrying case in this country is is that of students at Sussex calling for the firing of Kathleen Stock for her trans exclusionary views. But of course, you know, who has the power to enforce these views and to enforce their distrust of academics varies hugely between right-wing politicians and left-wing students or, you know, ostensibly left-wing students. So, I mean... Yes, it's, it's, it's really horrifying to see students calling for the professor's heads. But, you know, you're in this country, if you're an academic and you get fired, it's just overwhelmingly likely that that happened, not because students complained about you, but because 
university bureaucrats decided that you were fungible and expendable, right? And in some sense, I think that um, the neoliberalization of the university has has simply fed that increasing student view of academics as just sort of fungible and also for higher service providers, right? It's no surprise that when students start paying very large fees, um, they start wanting a certain kind of bang for their buck. And they wonder, why am I paying to have someone teach at my university who, you know, wants to deny what I take to be my fundamental rights? And that's quite that's quite a striking and I think worrying convergence. But at the same time, I think access to the levers of power are very different between students on the left and, and, and right wing politicians, as the recent legislation shows. What's driving all of this? Well, look, as the university democratizes, the ways in which it systematically fails to serve students from marginalized backgrounds, I think rightly becomes a greater point of focus for students. So in the good case, that looks like calls to change syllabuses, uh, you know, to decolonize and diversify curriculums, um, the request that more uh, like a wider range and a more imaginative range of academics be hired to teach them, right? In the bad case, it it leads to calls to censure and fire academics, often in the name of students' rights as consumers. So it's not that, look, I mean, <laughs> experts in general, economic experts, technocratic experts, have led you know, the world into many forms of disaster. So I think there's a general distrust of expertise. And then that carries over to the university. But I think there's also something specific about the university. Um, I think there's something that conservatives understand about the university that like those on the left don't understand or haven't metabolized to anything like the same degree, which is that if you can get students at university into your ranks and to be your foot soldiers and then maybe ultimately your leaders, that's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. I mean, the level of organizing of right-wing students at American and British universities just massively outpaces what you see among left-wing students. And by that, I mean, there are very strong material, financial, ideological connections between right-wing students on British and especially American university campuses and right-wing policymakers and, and political pundits and intellectuals than there is for the left. The left doesn't really see... Um, I mean, it, it has fewer funds with which to do so, but it doesn't really see students as part of a broader infrastructure, a broader political infrastructure. And the right is very good at seeing that. Well, that brings me quite nicely onto my next question, actually, which was going to be about student politics, essentially. So you talk in the piece about how on the right wing, part of the panic about free speech, which maybe really translates into a panic that right wing speakers and academics might be, quote unquote, cancelled stems from a fear that right-wing politics are just becoming less popular among students. Um, you're an academic, you work in a university, you teach undergrads and grad students. I'm, I'm wondering whether you think that fear is justified. Do, do students naturally gravitate away from right-wing politics now? And is that the fault of their lecturers? Do conservatives have a justified fear about the erosion of a conservative stronghold within universities? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Right. Um, maybe I shouldn't shouldn't say that, but you know, 
part of what my whole piece is about. It's about just sort of, you know, telling the truth about all of these things. And it's an incredibly robust sociological finding that the more education you have, the more to the left politically you you go, right? And And this isn't a culturally specific finding. So... It's just going to be the case that those people with advanced degrees, which is a requirement effectively for teaching at a university, and people who are drawn to the project of education are going to be disproportionately to the left. And I don't mean to the far left. I mean, you know, Oxford, it's it's hard to find a Marxist here. Um, I mean, you can find a kind of methodological Marxist materialist historian, but an actual Marxist, um, you know, they're thin on the ground. But it's definitely the case that academics at Oxford, at, I would imagine every other British institution or, or most of them, certainly all of the credentialed ones, uh, will have academics leaning to the left. It varies by department. This is obviously not true in the economics department where advanced degrees in economics make you more conservative as it happens. And there's also just a, another generational thing that's happening, which is that younger generations of people in, in the UK and the US and in, in some other places are tacking more to the left. And so they come further to the left when they enter university. So there isn't, I don't think, very much um, ideological shaping, actually, that's really going on. It's just, you know, there is a general drift in that direction. And so what does that mean for conservatives? Well, it means the only way, really, that you can ensure that conservatives are represented within the academy uh, in a way that's proportionate to their representation in the general population, is by very deliberate interventionist social engineering. And this is, of course, ironic because it's precisely that kind of social engineering at, that conservatives systematically oppose, right? So that's why they hate things like affirmative action or preferential hiring, because they think it is anti-meritocratic. And one could run a similar argument about quotas for right-wing academics. Uh, so one thing that um, proponents of this kind of view, I'm thinking of specifically someone like Eric Kaufman, who was one of the key designers of the new legislation. He's a political scientist at Birkbeck. Um, he's very right-wing. People who take this view will often point to the way in which um, conservative academics are discriminated against within the university. And Look, it's just the case that everyone is politically biased in favor of their own politics. So it would be really surprising if liberal lecturers didn't sometimes discriminate against right-wing candidates and, and so on. But what's so funny is, well, is it funny? It's grim. Um, the, the study that Eric Kaufman and his co-authors actually run and then publish in order to promote this new legislation uh, actually shows that it's conservative academics who are much likelier, much likelier to discriminate against left-wing academics in hiring. You know, I think in I think there's a sense in which conservatives have a reason to be worried, um, but I think it's totally and blatantly inconsistent with their own views. Um, to do the very things that would actually be required to sustain a very large conservative footprint within, within the university. Keeping on the subject of generational differences, I want to ask about how you think the younger generation or the generation that you teach 
relates to the concept of free speech, this idea that speech can be harmful and kind of do things to us? Because I think you talk really fascinatingly in the piece about your experience of being an academic and maybe also some of the changes in the way that your students have been talking about these ideas since you first started teaching. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why the piece is so long. It's 10,000 10, words. And part of it is because I'm, I struggle on the page to, I think, get a hold of, get a grip on the reality of student consciousness, if we can talk about something as unified as that. Obviously, there's a huge variation and diversity among students. Um, and the reason it's difficult is because one has one's own experiences with a limited number of students. And certainly I'm at Oxford, which is not, you know, in many ways, not a typical British university, but in, in many ways also is. But also because there's just this cacophony of of just, you know, worries and anxieties and condemnations and hysteria about the state of contemporary young people. And that's, of course, um, something that every generation reinvents for itself. I mean, so then, so then what does it look like to really get on to what students today think and how they are and aren't different from previous generations of students? It's really hard to say. I mean, they're kind of obvious continuities. So, you know, people talk about, um, you know, no platforming attempts and and the the uh, the kind of censoriousness of contemporary students. But at the same time, you know, you just need to look at the history of protests at Oxford. And I write about this, you know, in the 50s, 60s and 70s to see that all of this has basically happened before, you know, right wing politicians having to escape by the back stairs because left-wing students are forcing their way in, you know, the union having to, the Oxford Union, not the student union, having to disinvite Holocaust deniers, to disinvite apartheid politicians. I mean, you know, this has been going on for a very long time. And when you start looking at it from that historical perspective, you think, well, yeah, that's what student politics, in a sense, inevitably must be and maybe also should be, right? Um at the same time, I find it very hard not to think that something, some things have changed. So one of the things is precisely what you've just pointed out, which is this kind of changed relationship to the notion of harm. I find today's students so much more likely than I think previous generations of students to employ a discourse of safety, of harm, especially psychic harm, offense, trauma, mental health. Um, I mean, it's not totally new. I, in the piece, I actually talk about a letter to the editor I wrote when I was a first year undergraduate 20 years ago, in which I used some of those notions. I, I talk about safety and and harm, um, even though, as I say in the piece, it's not that I really believed in those as operating values. I thought those were kind of convenient ways of calling out um, what I saw as the abuse of um, a university member's office. And I think that that might also apply here, right? Like some of the students who are employing concepts like harm or or safety, it might be a little bit more expedient than emotionally true for them. I think that's so right. And I think that's also really hard to tease apart. So, you know, I think I look at it and I think sometimes, well, this is just the reigning discourse, right? This just becomes the 
the tool to which you just automatically appeal because it seems to be the one that's working. It's the one with which you're most familiar. And, you know, it can really put your opponent on the back foot because now all of a sudden your opponent either has to deny that harm is being committed, right? Or has to say that, well, that harm, like, I'm going to do it anyway, right? Uh, Harm is this quite powerful, powerful notion. And so I think students are a mixed bag here. I think there are many students for whom that is mostly a bit of like pragmatic politics. Uh, And I think that so it ranges from there to people who have fully internalized that way of thinking and really do feel themselves, experience themselves as very vulnerable, susceptible to harm, totally disempowered, um, traumatized potentially. And then I think there are people who are just somewhere on that spectrum, right? Uh, So... I think that's a noticeable shift, but I think the way we talk about it isn't very subtle because we just sort of take people at their word. And one thing you know from looking at the history of political movements is that political rhetoric is sometimes political rhetoric. It's being used prudentially. It's being used pragmatically for an end. You can't just read off how people really think about the world from what they say when they're fighting a political battle. I wonder if we can actually apply the same type of thinking to the right wing, because, I mean, you've been talking a lot about the use of emotional vocabulary, right? So you've been saying that students describe themselves as feeling anxious, feeling unsafe or fearful about things that that could be done to them with words or without words, but by those in power. And at the same time, it kind of reminds me of the fact that politicians on the right, especially when you're talking about extreme right wing demagogues like Trump or Ron DeSantis, that they're also very keen to employ the language of fear to try and convince their followers, right, that like what they call the woke blob is extremely powerful. So both sides in this case are seeing the other side as the ones in power. I'm wondering, how do you think that reframing of the concept of power has happened? And why has it happened? Mm, I think it would take a very good historian to give you a a full answer to that. Um, But I'll, I'll try and say a few things. I mean, so I think I think your diagnosis is absolutely right. There's actually something quite Nietzschean about it, right? So I'm thinking about that bit of Nietzsche's genealogy of morals in which he argues that the true origins of contemporary bourgeois morality lie in this, you know, slave revolt in morality. So when when those who were formerly enslaved and weak turned against their masters and created a morality, a Christian morality that celebrates weakness and self-denial and, and, and elevates that to what's now morally good and thereby disempowering those people, the strong, the previously strong, who in some sense are naturally supposed to rule. Yeah, so there, there are interesting inversions going on um, in these debates. And it's not just something that happens in in the US, of course, because, so sorry to keep on coming back to him, but, you know, Eric Kaufman um, writes in, I think it was the Telegraph, you know, writes about DeSantis's example, his example of bringing universities to heel in order to combat the quote unquote woke blob and praises him for doing that and says that Tory should follow follow that example, right? So there's again this anxiety about power, this powerful blob uh, taking control, and it needs to be fought back um, through through legislation. I mean, I think on all sides here, there is um, a troubling simplistic dichotomy between powerful and powerless. I mean, I'm really not trying to endorse the idea that, you know, the student on Twitter is as powerful as, you know, uh, a member of parliament. I mean, obviously, that's just patently absurd. Um, 
But within the culture wars, there are very few truly powerless people, right? Because basically to participate in the culture wars, you have to be online. That already places you in 50% of the world's population that is online, right? And that that true perfect position of powerlessness, which everyone is fighting to to take up, is one that's only really plausibly inhabited by, I don't know, a young child, displaced, uh, you know, without citizenship, uh, no prospects, right? And 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 none of the participants in these discourses are are of that form. And the irony here is that what what the right would call woke ideology, uh, and I would call like you know proper left intellectualism, precisely teaches you that these dichotomies between just you know simply powerful and simply powerless are um, are unhelpful, right? I mean, you know. One core thought of Marxism is that workers have power through co- the activity of their collective agency. It's not a pol- politics of powerlessness. It's a politics of power. And then, you know, the much derided intersectional feminism, right, the feminism associated with Black and Latina and Indigenous feminists from the 80s and 90s, teach us that even disempowered people very often act powerfully and use their power in abusive and problematic ways against other people. Right. That's that's what the psychology of power is. And I think any good left thinking doesn't think that there's any kind of purity in powerlessness, any kind of moral purity in powerlessness, and also thinks that pure powerlessness is is usually an illusion. I do worry about um, what happens when we deny our own power. Uh, I mean, I've written a little bit about this elsewhere. Um, You know, I've written about the way in which I think U.S. and British feminists are often denial of the enormous power they they wield, and how the denial of the power that feminists have, you know, Western feminists have accumulated in some cases, arrogated to themselves, um, the the way that power has often been wielded against, you know, intensely vulnerable women, women of the global south, sex workers, uh, you know, poor women, and so on. Um, so I worry about this kind of denial, denial of one's own power. But at the same time, I think, you know, you've got to acknowledge that there are real asymmetries and, and differences here. So, I mean, one thing that I think is going on with the Ron DeSantis's of the world is that when you're used to being relatively very, very powerful indeed, and then people get on a semi-democratized social media and suddenly have a voice who never had a voice before or never had much of a voice, certainly not a voice that would reach you, and all of a sudden can trigger these avalanches or these storms um, that can be directed against you and that you now all of a sudden see in your timeline. I mean, that can be experienced as an enormous assault on your entitlement. Um, and so I think that's part of the psychology that's going going on there. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 murky and a bit messy, but I think we could all think about this in 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 better ways. Well, I think you've begun to do this already, but um, I want to talk now a little bit about solutions. So, what is the way out of our collective our collective problem with understanding free speech and and using speech correctly, especially in the university? Um, I mean, you end the piece by talking about organisational techniques on the left and. You present it as a kind of utopian alternative to both blind tolerance and also to violence. So in your opinion, 
where do we go from here? What what kind of assumptions do we need to bring to the table? I mean, do you think that there are real prospects for bridging these supposedly unbridgeable culture war divides? And, and also maybe what, what might be some of the problems that face you when you start asking these kind of questions? Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly there are problems. There's nothing easy about the actual practice of organizing relatively disempowered people, right? It's much easier to just be on the side of money and institutions. Um, I mean, I think one thing I should I, sh- I should say at the start of answering this question is that you know there's a there's a a liberal standard traditional liberal way of thinking about what we do about bad speech, and that's to counter it with good speech or what's sometimes called counter speech. Uh, and you know, someone like Araf Ahmed, who describes himself um, as a near free speech absolutist, takes this view. So he thinks, well, you know, speech doesn't harm. Speech is the thing that saves us from coming to blows. It's our it's our only hope. What we have to do is argue with each other. And and it's not that I want to deny that picture altogether, but what it leaves out is the way in which certain positions just can't actually really be argued with, right? Because all arguments have their premises. And premises are defended usually by the fact that they just seem correct to the person. They seem it seems indut like it seems it seems beyond doubt, um, for example, to many people that black people are inferior to white people or women's places in the home. And it's it's and when those when people are using those or or you know or ho- homosexuality is just morally abhorrent and disgusting. When you're arguing with people like that. Uh, who hold those kind of views and whose arguments are structured in that way, all you can simply do is deny their premises. And as Wittgenstein said, you know, sometimes you get to the end of an argument and all you can say is my spade is turned. I have no more reasons to offer you. Um, So I think the idea that, you know, bad speech can always just be countered with good speech uh, misunderstands uh, the nature of argument and misunderstands the nature of belief. It, it rests on a, on a bad epistemology, an overly optimistic epistemology. Um, I mean, and there's, of course, more things to say about what happens when you take the ideal of free speech and, and dialogue um, and, and civil disagreement and then, uh, you know, put it into the real world of profound inequality, of ideology of social media of people cynically um, making arguments that that aren't about you know that have nothing to do with what they really believe but everything to do with the acquisition of power right so once we turn to the non-ideal world that vision of open and civil dialogue as as the way forward I think becomes intensely um, troubled so what's what's the alternative I mean does that I mean is the alternative we just go go to blows? We just have you know full on warfare, and I think the answer is not right. Um, and sorry, this is in no way uh, novel to me. I mean, the the note on which I end the on the piece um, is is about the practice of left organizing, which you know sometimes involves argumentation, but very often involves doing something much more human, um, trying to understand the ways in which people are disempowered and what it what what that disempowerment does to them what it deprives them of and showing them that forms of power that they didn't realize were available to them could be available to them through forms of collective activity 
And what you end up pointing out to people as an organizer is that, well, that collective activity is going to also require you to stand in solidarity with someone who you are politically opposed to, someone who's a Trump supporter, someone who's gay, someone who's trans. And that activity, it's the activity, it's the practice of standing in solidarity with people who are different, who have different views, that fundamentally changes people. I mean, I'm a philosopher, so it might sound a bit nuts for me to say this, but I don't think most people's minds are changed by reasons and by argumentation. People's minds are changed because they start acting differently and because new avenues of action are opened up to them and made possible. And of course, to answer your you know your excellent question. There are there are limits on this. There are people you you can't you can't organize, or you would have to be an extraordinarily skilled organizer to organize. I mean, one thing to say is just you know, there are people who are interested in the status quo. They are, just have very very strong material interests in disempowered people remaining disempowered, and it's going to be very very hard to get them to act in any kind of solidarity. Right? What we're really talking about. And this is why we have to disambiguate the notion of the Trump supporter, for example, or even the trans-exclusionary feminist. You have to think about those people with who fall under those headings, but who themselves can tap into experiences of very real powerlessness and who have excellent reason, who have strong interests in the challenging of the status quo. Hmm. So what are the prospects for left organizing of certain kinds of Trump supporters? Excellent. Absolutely excellent. Because, you know, not all, but some Trump supporters are Trump supporters because they have very justified grievances against all the mainstream political parties and against the American economic order. And and those are people who can be organized, who are organized. I mean, so when you look at the recent organization of um, the New York based Amazon factory. I mean, lots of the people who are being organized there were Trump Trump supporters. And what Chris Smalls, the head of the union, you know, said was that, you know, we just didn't really talk about politics. You know, you don't talk about politics, you talk about what people need, you talk about what their work lives are. And then you just get them to start acting together. And actually, those beliefs, those so, so-called beliefs, and this, again, this is sort of strange for me to say, because my training is in epistemology, the study of belief, the beliefs don't really matter that much. Belief doesn't actually matter nearly as much as we think it does. And I think actually maybe potentially a similar thing can be said about trans-exclusionary feminists. I don't think you are going to be able to convince um, someone whose identity and more importantly career revolves around being, you know, anti, anti-trans. But I think there are plenty of just ordinary women who don't really recognize the way in which the, the forces that are arrayed against trans people are also the very same forces who want to see them back in the kitchen, who want to see their reproductive rights stripped and who, you know, aren't interested in quelling the epidemic of violence against women. And that's something that can be shown. And it's not really shown through argument. Again, it's shown through it's shown through action. I think we've been talking throughout this episode about what speech is, you know, how important is speech, how important is language. And I actually want to end by asking you a little bit more about yourself as a philosopher um, and as a writer of a piece like this. How how does that question of how much speech matters inform your methodology when you're trying to construct an argument over a large number of words like you were here? Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I live in a world of words. So it's a bit like asking, I think, a fish how they feel about water. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's unfair because maybe fish don't get better uh, at swimming through practice. Um, certainly, I, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time practicing writing and reading. But, you know, in some sense, speech is something I think about a lot. Language is something I think a lot about. I just instinctively care about it. Um, I love this bit in Adrienne Rich near the beginning of, of Woman Born where she talks about how, you know, up until now, it's it's the sons of women who have been the namers and sayers of culture, right? Um, the thought is that, you know, the people who get to put words um, to experiences, the people who get to describe reality uh, are really in some fundamental sense the people um, in, in power. Now, I don't want to adopt that view wholly because, you know, I have a I also think that the people who are in charge of the material are the people who are fundamentally in power. But of course that very distinction between material and um representation or, you know, reality and speech, I think is a is a false one. Our realities are constituted by how we how we talk about them. We are constituted by how we how we talk about our how we talk about ourselves. Um, but you know, what's interesting about about this piece, I guess, is I really didn't want to write it. Um, you know, I want to be thinking about and writing about other things, but I was just getting so frustrated that no one else was saying what I thought someone needed to say. And that's actually, it's not always the case. It's certainly not the case when I write about octopuses. That's, that was just because that's what I wanted to write about. But sometimes, I think, especially when I write about politics, um, it comes from a place of a feeling like a, almost a kind of wearied resignation, the feeling like, okay, I guess I guess I'm going to be the person to write this down. And, and then what often happens when I write that kind of piece is I then get emails from people saying that I put what they've always thought into words. And I think there's a certain kind of philosopher who, I mean, th- th- who wouldn't like that. Maybe I think most philosophers don't want to tell you what you already think. Most philosophers want to get you to think brand new thoughts, maybe thoughts you thought you were totally, you know, antecedently thought you thought were massively implausible and then they lead you through an argument and it comes to seem plausible. That's, I think, the standard way of thinking about a philosophical victory. For me, though, I like that feeling of, of giving people words for things that they already felt. And in fact, with UCL, I used to give this first year uh, philosophy lecture, which I'm really sad not to give anymore. And and a lot of it was just about you know what philosophy, what philosophy is. Um, and the thing I would I would say, and it's a very partisan, very I think idiosyncratic view of what philosophy is, but it is sort of my view is that um, you know philosophy is giving language to pain. And that that again is a notion borrowed from Wittgenstein in a way, because he talks about how a child acquires language with which to describe his pain. He says, you know, the child falls and, you know, bruises or cuts his knee. And then the the adults rush to him and start cajoling him and consoling him. And they thereby teach him these words for the expression of of pain. But it's like the emotion, it's the feeling, it's the experience that comes first. And then and then this language uh and then this language follows. Um, so it's not the only way of doing philosophy. It's probably not even the majoritarian way of doing it. But it's the kind of it's the kind of writing I like to do. Um, hopefully, giving language to to people's pain or occasionally their joys.
Well, Mia, thank you so much for joining me. It's been really fascinating. Thanks so much, Malin, for the great questions. You can read Amir's piece, Can I Speak Freely, as well as her other pieces for the paper, on our website at lrb.co.uk. Amir's book, The Right to Sex, a collection of essays, some of which originally appeared in the LRB, was published in 2021. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne, and the music is by Kieran Brunt. 